When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Coming up later in the show, Ivanka Watch. Ivanka on Tuesday made her debut on the world stage with her first official foreign trip to attend the W20 summit in Germany. That's the women's part of the G20. Amy Willens will comment. Also, Katha Pollitt says it's not McCarthyism to demand answers on Trump, Russia, and the election. But first, Margaret Atwood is one of our heroes. She's written more than 20 novels and 30 or 40 other books, poetry, essays, short stories, other stuff. Today we want to talk about The Handmaid's Tale. It's a story about the United States after a coup has abolished democracy and established a theocratic dictatorship. The book has been translated into more than 40 languages. Now it's a Hulu miniseries starting on April 26th and starring Elizabeth Moss, who is fabulous. It's also the first work of feminist dystopian fiction ever featured in a Super Bowl halftime ad. So, Margaret Atwood, welcome. Thank you. Is it the first work of fiction, period, that was ever featured in a Super Bowl halftime ad? I I think so. Those ads are mostly, you know, beer and and cars. Well, there you go. Good company. Anyway, congratulations to you and Hulu for getting this on TV during Trump's first 100 days. That's quite an achievement. Well, I, th- I think it was a, I think it was a coincidence because they started planning the series quite a long time before the election, and they started putting it together. I think Elizabeth Moss signed in April of 2016, and they started filming in September of. 2016. So it's just that the election gave it much more relevance. Yeah. In fact, the LA Times called the Hulu Handmaid's Tale shockingly relevant in the age of Trump. But what would it what would have happened if if Hillary had won? What would have been like to Well, I it think then? it would have been like, "Oh, look what we just avoided." <laughs> okay. <laughs> It might have been that, or it might have been Hillary is the new Anne Dowd playing Aunt Lydia. It might have been like that. <laughs> we don't actually know. Oh, dear. It, the Handmaid's Tale does seem shockingly relevant in the age of Trump, but I, I don't think you were thinking about Donald Trump when you wrote it, were you? I was not thinking about Donald Trump back in 1984 when I started writing it. I was thinking about dictatorships of the 20th century and uh, also the kinds of talking that people were already doing in the United States at that time, which I was finding in magazines and newspapers, and they were talking about what they would like to do should they get the power to do it. So which which of, 
uh, recently acquired women's rights would let they like to abolish and roll back, among other things. In the story of The Handmaid's Tale, the birth rate has fallen drastically because toxic pollution has interfered with fertility, and women who are still fertile are enslaved to ruling class men and their wives to bear children for them. There's also a totalitarian Christian police state fighting a... Yeah, I wouldn't call it Christian. What would you call, I would it? call it? I would call it just, it's it's theocratic, and it's literalist, but the part about loving your neighbor is not in there. <laughs> That's an excellent point. As Rebecca Mead wrote in that wonderful piece in The New Yorker, the book and the miniseries, quote, do not map closely onto the present moment, mostly because Donald Trump, while he's a misogynist, he's not particularly religious. He likes supermodels. He brags about grabbing pussy. Nevertheless, the book does seem shockingly relevant. I wonder what you see as the parts that feel most familiar today. Okay, so Donald Trump, and and when you ask people in the world, why did the evangelicals vote for him? Yeah. So it's not Donald Trump you're looking at there. It's who supported him and and why. And uh, there's a biblical explanation for everything, and I do know the Bible quite well because I'm Canadian of a certain generation and we had it in school. So what their explanation is is that God has often used ungodly figures to advance God's agenda. And they will mention people like Nebuchadnezzar and things like that. So they see... Donald Trump as an ungodly figure who nonetheless has been used by God to advance God's agenda, namely theirs. So that's how it maps onto the present moment. That is the that is the thinking of the supposedly Christian evangelicals who voted for Donald Trump, hoping that he would help them get what they wanted. And of course we have Vice President Pence, who is a religious patriarch and misogynist. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know about his misogyny, but but certainly he is much more orthodox, shall we say, than Donald Trump has ever been. And basically the whole return to patriarchy seems very much a part of the Trump White House, just those pictures of all the old white men uh, wearing uh, blue suits shoulder to shoulder. Uh, yeah, I think that's part of the message. And part of the message is, quote, America is back, and that's what they think of America as being. But as I've said on a lot of occasions, underneath the 18th century Enlightenment that gave you the Constitution, there is a 17th century theocracy that was Puritan. And one thing the Puritans and the Protestants in general did was they got rid of all of the female saints and demoted the Virgin Mary. So that they really got rid of a lot of uh, female iconography and symbolism that had been in Christianity before. They just dumped it out the window. And what remained was pretty solidly male. In fact, somebody has a study of people who were stolen away by indigenous people in the 17th century. And among those people stolen, all of the men wanted to get back. And very few of the women did because they were actually having more fun <laughs> among the indigenous oh people where women had higher status. This, this, is, uh, this is not the way they told the story in that John Wayne movie, The Searchers. They did not. <laughs> <laughs> no, they didn't. Uh, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of 
actually research done in this area. And there's a book called The Unredeemed Captive, in which uh, a woman is stolen away, and and they they find it where she is and try to get her to come back, and she just doesn't want to. I think I saw you for a minute on screen in the Hulu miniseries, mini the the scene where one of the handmaids, one of the girls says she was gang raped at 14 and had an abortion. And there's a circle of women around her and you're, you're part of the circle. And so there's, there's two circles around two circles. One of them are the handmaids and the others are the Aunt Lydia's. The Aunt Lydia's. And, and yeah. the, the head Aunt Lydia says after hearing the story of the gang rape at 14, whose, whose fault, fault was it? And, and what do you answer? Well, the circle answers her fault. And my character, I should say the central character, Elizabeth Moss, playing Alfred, isn't pointing and saying that. And my character bops her over the head to make her join in. Pay attention and start chanting now. (laughs) So whose fault was it? Her fault. And who led them on? And what's your answer? She did. She did. So in my generation, people used to say she got herself raped, Mm. you know, as if it was an autonomous act. And... Then Aunt Lydia asks, why did God allow such a terrible thing to happen? Yes, and that they say, teach her a lesson. Teach her a lesson. And so I wonder what it was like for you to do that scene. Oh, I think it was pretty painful. I mean, it's it's always, it it brings back that whole generation. Well, the good old days, you know, the good old days, that's what things were like. So if mishaps happened, it was your fault. Well, the week that Trump took the oath of office, you wrote a piece for The Nation on the subject of the obligations of the artist in the age of Trump. You you looked at the argument that artists and writers have a special responsibility to speak truth to power. A Yeah, you can't tell them to do that. You can't tell artists and writers what to do, uh, but some of them will do that. Yeah, I, I thought you had a wonderful argument where you said uh, artists are being lectured on their moral duty. How come other other professionals aren't? And who are? <laughs> Let's hear it for dentists. <laughs> yeah. what, about, what about the obligations of dentists in the age yeah, of Trump? About them? Yeah, the obligations of dentists in the age of Trump. Stand up for dentistry. <laughs> uh, I don't think dentistry is actually being threatened yet, although it might be soon. When you wrote A Handmaid's Tale, that was, of course, in the age of Reagan, the middle of uh, Reagan's uh, eight-year term. Did you write A Handmaid's Tale out of some kind of sense of obligation to speak truth to power? No, I, I, I don't. Um, as I say, you can't tell artists and writers to, that they have a special obligation as artists and writers. And in fact, there's nothing inherently sacred about books. There's nothing inherently sacred about art, and books and art have often been employed in the service of dictatorship. So uh, let's not get too holy about that. I write things that interest me, and that's what authors do. So if they're writing something that doesn't interest them, it's not going to be very good, is it? <laughs> uh, so so I think, I think we're, always, we're always piling onto artists and writers' obligations that ought to be the obligations of every citizen. So what kind of artistic responses to Trump might be uh, possible? Of course, we have lots of satire that makes fun of Trump. Yeah, it it never really... I mean, it's 
interesting and and funny to those on a certain side of politics, but I I don't think that Charlie Chaplin's satire of Hitler stopped Hitler from doing World War Two, yeah. did it? No. no. So, what kind of art is likely to come out of it? If if nothing else, I would say the art of witness. So, people making a record of the times we live in, but the times we live in are so volatile and so changeable. You don't know from one week to the next what this administration is likely to do or say. I think people just haven't got a grip on it yet. The New Yorker profile by Rebecca Mead says that you went to one of the uh, women's marches the day after Trump's inauguration. What, what was that like? The one in Toronto. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's even at one remove for people in Canada. It's not actually our president, but I'm, people were marching in sympathy. So they were showing support for, for people south of the border, and that is, <laughs> that's kind of an odd thing when you come to think of it. But people all over the world did that. March in Toronto was, was one of those. And what happened with all of those gatherings was they were a lot bigger than people thought they were going to be. So there was this huge mass of people. I'm not sure that much marching took place because it was hard to move. And also you couldn't you couldn't hear anything. <laughs> so you couldn't hear any of the speakers. But you were there. You were there. <laughs> so I saw a lot of old friends. Hi <laughs> Can you hear anything? No. <laughs> like your hat. I saw a lot of interesting signs. Yeah, tell us about the signs. Well, the signs were great. I think my favorite sign was a, an older woman holding a sign that said, after 60 years, I'm still holding... Why am I still holding this effing sign? <laughs> but there are also a number of Handmaid's Tale signs uh, of many kinds, a lot that said, make Margaret Atwood fiction again, which wasn't very encouraging to me personally, but I think they meant my book. I think they meant make the Handmaid's Tale fiction. That's again. what they meant. That's what they meant. Well, the Handmaid's Tale premieres on Hulu April 26th. Margaret Atwood wrote about artists in the age of Trump for The Nation. You can find it at thenation.com. Margaret, thanks so much for everything you do, and thanks for talking with us today. And thank you. It's not McCarthyism to demand answers on Trump, Russia, and the election. That's what Katha Pollitt argues in her new column at The Nation. Katha, of course, is a poet and essayist, as well as an award-winning columnist. Her most recent book is Pro, Reclaiming Abortion Rights. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, The Nation, along with The Intercept and some other publications on the left, have published a series of pieces arguing that the search for ties between the Trump campaign and Putin is a kind of McCarthyism. The Intercept, for example, declared that accusing your opponents of Kremlin ties and Russian sympathies has a long, ugly history, close quote, our question is, is what's happening now really McCarthyism? Partly, of course, it's an issue of definition. How do you define McCarthyism? Well, I would say that McCarthyism involves the government 
Yes. Uh, accusing fairly ordinary people, not always. I mean, there were those screenwriters and some people in the State Department, but mostly ordinary people of being communists and destroying their lives. In this case, it's completely the opposite. <laughs> some people are accusing the government of very specific crimes. I mean, it's the other feature of McCarthyism is it has this kind of miasmic, had this kind of miasmic quality of uh, you might have done something, you might have read the wrong books, you subscribed to the Daily Worker, you knew some, pe you knew the wrong people, that kind of thing. You said something, and that's what made it very scary. People were not often accused of specific crimes. In this case, it's a very small number of very definite, very powerful people. It is being suggested on the basis of some evidence, although not perfect evidence, that they were in cahoots with the Russians to throw the election to Trump. That's a completely <clears throat> different situation. The people who you are challenging here, notably Glenn Greenwald at The Intercept and Stephen Cohen at The Nation, have argued that the actual evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians is pretty thin. The FBI, the CIA, and to a lesser extent the NSA stated the conclusion that they came to, but, but, but we haven't seen much of the evidence, at least not yet, and therefore, they say, it's wrong for you and me to treat as fact something that remains merely a suspicion. What do you say to that argument? Well, that's why I think we need an independent commission to look into all this. I wouldn't claim to know what happened. That would be very foolish. But there's a certain amount of circumstantial evidence. I mean, just today, just today, it turns out Mike Flynn was getting, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars as an agent for Turkey with this guy who had a lot of Russian connections. So I think we do need to investigate it. But just because the, the truth is that if we don't know it did happen. We also don't know that it didn't happen. But they seem to have decided a priori, oh, there's nothing. There's nothing important there. How well, can they do that? And the other thing they say is that it's a big mistake for you and me to believe the FBI and the CIA. For all of our lives, we have not regarded them as the source of truth and, uh, and wisdom on politics. Why believe them now? Well, I don't think it's just them. I think it's a number of members of the intelligence community. And I think there's other strong suggestions as well from other places. But, you know, even a stop clock is right twice a day. Um, the CIA and the FBI aren't wrong about everything. And like I say, I'm not saying we have to believe this because the CIA never, never is never wrong and the FBI is never wrong. I'm saying we really need to examine this very carefully. That's all. Why is that so controversial? Another argument that is often made is, is that this is simply a way of exonerating Hillary from responsibility for her loss. It's wrong, this argument goes, for Democrats to focus so much on Russia. That's not the lesson that we should learn from Hillary's defeat. The Democratic Party has to change in a lot of ways that have nothing to do with Russia. I don't see a contradiction there. I think it's possible to, you know, there are 24 hours and it's in seven days. It's possible to do both. I think there are very few people who are saying, yes, Hillary Clinton ran a perfect campaign. And the only reason she lost is because Vladimir Putin hacked the DNC and put all that 
stuff out there in public. I don't think anybody's saying that. I mean, the Comey letter was also important if we want to talk about things that, external things that affected the Clinton campaign. And of course, the Clinton campaign was not perfect. No candidate, no candidate's campaign is. So I think you can do both. And I think that saying this is all about Hillary is, uh, is to use one of the words I discuss in my piece, a distraction. There is something about this they don't want to look at. And I think that that comes out when uh, Steve Cohen talks about Kremlin baiting, for example. Yeah, what, is, think, what is Kremlin baiting? They say, Well, you know, you should ask him. I think it's a very strange term that shows up a lot in our pages. And, you know, it's modeled on red baiting. And red baiting is the use of unfounded or irrelevant vague accusations of communist affiliation to smear someone that you don't like. For example, Martin Luther King Jr. was called a communist in order to discredit the civil rights movement. But since we don't know whether there is a Trump-Putin connection, Kremlin baiting is what they call, people always just misuse this phrase, but that is a true example of begging the question, which is the, where you assume what you need to prove that no con- connection exists or matters, that, just to, that this is as ridiculous, saying that the Kremlin had something to do with the DNC hack or other interferences, is as ridiculous as saying Martin Luther King was, Jr. Was a, was a communist. Um, and I don't see why it's unkosher to speak negatively of the Kremlin in any way. What worthy project is, is Kremlin baiting attempting to derail? And I think it has to be that if we're not really, really nice to Putin, he'll blow up the world. I want to go back to your invocation of the argument that it's a distraction to focus on Russia. I think the idea there is Democrats need to focus on the issues people really care about, the bread and butter issues. They need to fight for a a better tax policy. They need to tax the rich. They need to fix Obamacare and, you know, get Medicare for all. And it's a distraction to put our energy into demanding uh, an investigation of of Trump's complicity uh, with Putin. You know, I don't buy that. It is possible to fight for health care for all and also want an independent and very serious and assertive and aggressive investigation of the possibility that Donald Trump received uh, help from Putin. Now, interestingly enough, this issue is working very well for Democrats. Yeah. Uh, there was a Quinnipiac poll at the end of March that found 66% of Americans support an investigation by an independent committee. 65% think the alleged Russian interference is very important or somewhat important. And, you know, think of it another way, too. Keeping the heat on this issue has really destabilized the whole Trump operation. Manafort and Flynn are gone. Attorney General Jeff Sessions has had to recuse himself from any investigation into Russian meddling. And so has uh, Devin Nunes, the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, who's a Trump ally. So uh, why is this all distracting? I would say it's fighting to win. It's using the weapon that's here in a fair way that people care about. What's wrong with that? And I would take that one step farther and say Trump's greatest single vulnerability is his collusion with Russia in winning the presidency. That's something that even the Republicans would have a hard time dismissing if there were strong evidence backing up those charges. So if there was any chance of getting Trump out of office before his term is up, it seems to me it would be around a collusion with with Russia. And as you say, why ignore his greatest vulnerability? I don't understand it. (laughs) I really don't. I think that um, there is something about it being Russia 
that has evoked this very, very long history of anti-communism, of or defending against anti-communism, defending against red baiting. And I say in my piece, you know, it's as if the fact that Russia occupies some of the same geography as the Soviet Union did has, has trapped people in the defensive attitudes of an earlier era. And, you know, hello, Russia is not a communist country. It represents nothing progressive. It is a capitalist kleptocracy. It's run by an autocrat and an enemy of human rights who, by the way, is, has been accused of destabilizing elections in many other countries. And I just don't get why, you know, it's like we have this loyalty to the landmass. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't understand it. Well, related to this is the argument that Trump wants to have better relations with Putin, and that's not a bad thing because Russia is the second biggest nuclear power on the planet. Uh, the people who want to uh, Trump to turn against Russia and become, uh, you know, return to the Cold War with a new Cold War are threatening uh, world peace and nuclear war, and that's something that would be good to avoid, and Trump says he wants to avoid it, and so we should support him in that. What do you say to that? Well, I think what I say to that is that, yes, you know, before the election, there were people, including people at the nation, who saw Trump as the peace candidate. Well, how long did that last? Uh, you, know, I, this, you know, the idea that Trump is going to have some consistent, firm policy, I think, has already been shown to be a fantasy. He bombed Syria. He's doing all kinds of nonsense with North Korea. You know, Russia is not the only problem we have, and I think it's it's perfectly we are perfectly capable of uh, investigating this possible interference with our election and maintaining realpolitik non-nuclear war with Russia. Uh, I mean, it's the idea that Russia's good, that Russia is going to drop a nuclear bomb on the United States because we think he hacked our election. Is uh, that, I mean, is that what it's saying? We can't. We can't. We just have to take it because otherwise he'll do something really terrible. That doesn't sound to me like the way world statesmen act. Some of my friends have also told me that this is a case of the pot calling the kettle black. The United States has been interfering with uh, elections all over the world, Europe Latin, and Latin America, going back to the 40s. And, you know, uh, we have no right to complain about this when the tables are turned on us. Just because we have done something doesn't mean we have to lie back and take it when somebody does it to us. We have a duty to protect the integrity of our electoral process. And everybody else's, too. We at The Nation have been consistent in saying it's wrong to interfere with other people's elections. It's wrong when the United States does it. So I guess it must be wrong when Russia does it. Oh, that's a very good point. Why don't they make that point? Last but not least, I want to quote what I regard is the the sentence I have disagreed with most that has appeared in the nation uh, since the election. It's the sentence by Patrick Lawrence, who wrote in February, quote, there is only one thing worse than this president. I refer to the liberal reaction to his election, close quote. I wonder what your response is to that. I think it's ridiculous. I mean, is he really saying... Rachel Maddow is worse than Donald Trump. Daily Coast, worse than Donald Trump. And those women's marchers, much, much worse than Donald Trump. I, I don't understand this. I mean, it's, there's this kind of reflexive, 
you know, if you can call something liberal now, it's automatically bad, no matter whether you're coming from the right or the left. And never mind that the nation is a liberal magazine. Somehow it's a dirty word in our pages. Um, and I think that uh, Patrick Lawrence is one of the people who thinks, that, thinks of Donald Trump as the potential peace candidate. And, you know, I'll, I'm looking forward to his piece where he takes it all back. Katha Pollitt, her new column is titled, It's Not McCarthyism to Demand Answers on Trump, Russia, and the Election. You can read it at thenation.com. Katha, it's always great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me, John. Next up, Ivanka Watch with Amy Willens. Ivanka on Tuesday made her debut on the world stage with her first official foreign trip to attend the W20 Summit in Germany, where she spoke on a panel on women's entrepreneurship headed by Angela Merkel, also the director of the International Monetary Fund, the Queen of the Netherlands, and the Canadian Foreign Minister, all women, for comment, we turn to Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. She's also the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's written for The New York Times, Politico, The Washington Post, and lots more. She won the National Book Critics Circle Award for her most recent book about Haiti. It's called Farewell, Fred Voodoo. And she also teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. First of all, I should explain what the W20 is. There's the G20. That's the world's 20 leading economies and their governments. The G20 launched a group two or three years ago aimed at, they say, boosting the role of women in global economic growth. And that group is the W20. The official statement of the G20 is the W20's goal is, quote, to achieve a gender-inclusive global economic growth in the G20 countries through the economic empowerment of women, close quote. Ivanka appeared at the G20 in Germany on Tuesday morning. What happened there? Well, she spoke out for her father's uh intentions on women's entrepreneurship, and she was roundly hissed, even booed. But I think it was only by the press, because I didn't see in the audience any audience other than the press. So we can't say that it was the German people themselves, uh, just the German press. You know, it's it's interesting how she's being uh, normalized as a representative of the U.S. government, an unelected person representing the U.S. government, and not in a actually traditional um, family role. I mean, she is there as as a person of power, like the head of the IMF or the queen of a country or the deputy prime minister of a country. But she's not those things. She's the president's daughter. But it's being sort of normalized. And and I think that the you know, the invitation came from Merkel. And I think that itself is very interesting because Merkel she cannot have forgotten that Donald Trump during his campaign called her, and I quote, insane, unquote, and said that she was ruining Germany. So that's something she hasn't forgotten, I'm sure. But nonetheless, she has to work with the guy. And she, a canny, clever, long-lived politician, has realized that the way to a man's heart is through his daughter. <laughs> Hence the appearance of Ivanka on the, on the world stage, really, uh, for the first public time. 
One of the things that occurred to me as I watched her speaking, and she gave a kind of fine but lame talk, the, the usual talk. It was just exactly the talk she gave at the Republican convention, but shorter, blessedly. You see her up there and you think about Jared in the White House uh, and you realize, or for me anyway, it reminds me of how you do business with um, leaders of developing nations. Usually their families also are in positions of power and you have to, especially when you're dealing with them domestically, you have to go to the president's brother who runs the, say, mining department. Usually it's the mining department. And the daughter who is minister of culture. Yeah, always minister of culture or media. And you have to go to them. And as the opinion editor of Die Welt, uh, a German daily, I think, told uh, Politico yesterday, she said, we have family clan experience in autocracies (laughs) when she was speaking about the appearance of Ivanka. The Berliner Zeitung called her possibly the loyal accomplice. I mean, everybody is stunned by this appointment. Well, the the mission of the W20 is the economic empowerment of women. And Ivanka, I'm sure, and her father especially, claim that she has some standing to speak about the economic empowerment of women, not only because she is a powerful woman with a multi-million dollar enterprise of her own, but through her website, IvankaTrump.com, she campaigns for the economic empowerment of women. I know you've looked at IvankaTrump.com. You wrote about it in your cover story for The Nation. Remind us about what we learn about uh, Ivanka's strategy for the economic empowerment of women. First of all, she's very it's very soft empowerment of women. For example, for a long time, a lot of the companies who... Uh, our retailers under her broad retail umbrella did not give any kind of maternity leave or uh, family leave to their workers because their workers are workers in the international garment industry who don't get maternity leave. So women's empowerment, I, I, you know, I'm not sure Ivanka even really understands it. And this is what I wrote about in my nation piece. There's uh, on her website, there's a picture of Ivanka and all women, all women will laugh at this. She's sitting at the desk, uh, and the Germans particularly were making fun of this today. She's sitting at the desk in her very chic kind of Scandinavian office in her nice clothes, sitting at a desk, an empowered woman with the baby on one knee, signing like important documents with the other hand. (laughs) And you just know it doesn't work that way. No mother ever does that. Her idea of female empowerment is a have-it-all. It's a very old-fashioned to us now, have-it-all kind of empowerment. And she does, of course, have it all, literally. So you're suggesting that IvankaTrump.com did not start as a microfinance enterprise. (laughs) No, it started as a macrofinance enterprise. And I just think it's odd that Ivanka Trump, a former model, an heiress, a current, if recused, retailer, whose panel table used to be on The Apprentice, her own father's reality TV show, is now appearing on panels as an international ex- expert in women's affairs. But one thing that also interests me about the way Trump is running the government and Ivanka's place in the government is, you know, he hasn't appointed the number of people he really needs to appoint. It's only been 100 days, but usually presidents have pretty much their State Departments, their their diplomats up and running as soon as possible. People are clamoring for the di- diplomatic positions. But Merkel really is 
reduced to speaking to Ivanka Trump, who she now knows, because simply there is no U.S. ambassador to Germany yet. Yeah, if you think about if if some other Republic, Republican were president, say it was Jeb Bush, would Ivanka Trump be the American representative right. to the G20's women's branch? Did George Bush send the twins? <laughs> it's not just Germany where Ivanka has played a prominent role in representing the United States and the Trump administration. There's also China. Yeah, I love the fact that Ivanka gets all the biggies, you know. I'm wondering whether Tiffany is going to the Gambia. You know, (laughs) is Tiffany going to uh, tiny Burundi and to Monaco? Because, you know, Ivanka gets the big powers. Yeah, there's something called, apparently, Iwankare in China, and it means Ivanka fever. Mm. They love Ivanka Trump. Uh, they love Tiny Arabella and the New Year's song in Mandarin that she sang for uh, Premier Xi. Rebecca Carl in China File, it's a blog, she wrote, it's a symptom of the kleptocratic nepotistic trends in Chinese elite circles, Iwankare. No longer can there be any pre- pretense to a purported distance between Chinese so-called crony capitalism and our own so-called crony capitalism. And Ivanka stands for that. And there was that surprising coincidence when the Chinese president was visiting in Mar-a-Lago. Suddenly, China approved Ivanka's applications for trademarks. How did that work? Well, will we ever know? But it does seem that nice things happen when you go to Mar-a-Lago. Like if you're Sisi uh, of Egypt, you go to Mar-a-Lago or you meet with Trump and he says nice things about your dictatorial government and nice things about you in spite of all the people you've thrown in jail. And then he releases uh, an American for you. You know, there's a lot of quid pro quoing going on here. The defenders of China's action in granting Ivanka her trademarks was that China has many uh, bad entrepreneurs who will steal Ivanka's trademarks and release their own pirated goods called Ivanka, Ivanka shoes, Ivanka bags, and and so on. And so it's very important to recognize that Ivanka is the owner of Ivanka Trump. Can I tell my story, John? Please. There's this famous story, possibly apocryphal, but I believe it, that um, a friend of Donald Trump's called Trump Tower one evening after having spent some time in Jersey. And what year are we in here? I'm not sure, but she was 14 years old. And uh, she picked up the phone. Hi, it's Vanka. <laughs> and, uh, and he said to her, oh, just the person I want to talk to, because you know what? I was uh, driving through Jersey, and I saw by the side of the highway a hairdressing salon called Ivanka Hair. And he hears Ivanka on the other end of the line shouting out to Donald across the room, Daddy, I told you we should have trademarked my name. <laughs> 14. <laughs> I don't want to let you go without asking about Jared, John Oliver, in his wonderful piece on Sunday, said, it's not unusual for wealthy men to give their sons-in-law do-nothing jobs. That's not what's happened with Jared. But a lot of people are still telling us Jared is a liberal, Jared is basically a Democrat, it's so good that Jared is at his father-in-law's right hand. Uh, What have you learned about Jared lately? Well, it makes me laugh because, you know, a do-nothing job what we call in Haiti, a zombie job. (laughs) There's not that much difference between a do-nothing job and a do-everything job in government, because if you have a do-everything job in government, you basically can do nothing. And and Jared has the do-everything portfolio. 
But beyond that, I was very interested to read recently a story that I believe is apocryphal but meaningful, uh, which was that, that when Jared's dad was sent to prison and Jared was a young man about to take over the reins of everything in his family and also become a figure in New York, his PR person, his dad's PR person said to him, "Okay, there are three things you have to do right away. First of all, buy a New York City newspaper. Boom. He bought the Observer. Second, buy a big building. He did that, <laughs> 666, aptly na- the aptly named, and marry a New York City heiress. Wow. He did that. Wow. So he set himself up. Of course, I don't believe the story, but it's a great story. <laughs> Amy Willens, she wrote the nation's cover story on Ivanka. You can read it at thenation.com. Amy, thanks for coming in today. Thank you, John. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. That's our sister podcast hosted by the nation's sports editor. This week, Dave talks about the New England Patriots' visit to the White House, where Donald Trump was honoring them for winning the Super Bowl. It's a customary thing, but this time, a lot of the players did not show up. Only 35 of the Patriots were there, compared to 50 who accepted Obama's invitation uh, when the Patriots won in 2015. Dave talks about what players said about why they refused to go, including those who said, quote, I don't feel welcome in that house, close quote. That's on Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.